Welcome to the Ripe Global Podcast, a podcast providing innovative and inspirational dental education to dental professionals and their teams worldwide. Each fortnight, we deliver relevant content covering procedures, educational opportunities, and interviews with rock stars from the dental world. As we explore the successes and failures of dentistry, learn practical tips and expert advice to help you become a better dental professional. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. So this morning, this evening, this afternoon, I have no idea when or where you're listening, but I have a dear old friend, Dr. Iron Mike Frazis. Frazis, Mike, how do you pronounce your name? Everybody, I you know, I get my name butchered, you get your name butchered. Let's let's both, just clear this up right off the both bat. Both are equally uh, equally as correct. As long as you don't add random consonants in there like Francis or Fratsis, then uh, then you're doing well. How about so if, phrases, like Italian, phrases is like, going to be good. Like phrases. Does that work? Is that there's, that there's a few people. There's a few people who may or may not listen to this podcast who would find that quite hilarious um, because <laughs> they used to um, they used to put on a very heavy Italian accent whenever they used my my last name. Um, a few names come to mind. I won't name them here, but um, yeah, and any of those are going to be perfectly fine. It just depends on what part of the world you came from. Well, speaking of what part of the world you came from, so you're in Adelaide, South Australia. I've yes. been to your lovely city uh, one one time. But why don't you, you know, I, I know a lot of people on Ripe Global know who you are, but uh, there are a lot of listeners that may not. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, where you practice, your family, whatever you'd like to share about yourself. Cool. Um, so you already know my name and I... I do some some online content, some online education. I've been a dentist uh, nearly 10 years now. So I graduated in 2012 uh, from Adelaide University in in Australia. Um, I was born in Australia, but then I moved to to Greece for the first three years of my life, came back to Australia, lived there ever since. And yeah, I haven't moved around a lot sort of life wise but i've always been in that same spot uh after i graduated i moved around between a few different jobs both rural um, and local i did some fly in fly out work for some a remote uh, community when i first graduated got a lot of experience and then i settled upon uh, my current practice that i work out of which is semaphore dental i don't own the practice uh, i work with six other uh, amazing clinicians and we all sort of work together uh, to bring the the best patient care that we can. So I've been fantastic. Oh, I've been there before now. Nearly seven seven years. I've been in the same location. Six seven years, something like that. I can't remember, however long it is. What what took you to that location? So basically, the first when I graduated, you know, as we all were, we were promised that we're instantly going to get a job somewhere. And when I graduated, it took me like three months to actually find employment. And that employment was uh, part-time at two different practices. And at first it was great um, because there's various government schemes that uh, Australia has for um, people on low income to try and get them to get some, some dentistry done. So I was quite involved with, with those when I first graduated. But then they started to dry up a little bit and the books became very light and I hadn't actually developed my books in such a way that I was doing more private patients or just more just everyday kind of patients. I was just being fed the the government voucher patients. So 
once my books dried up, I decided to move on to sort of greener pastures. And then I actually bounced around between a few different practices before I actually, yeah, settled on the semaphore. You know, we have jokes about calling each other Team Mike. And, and it's funny, I started out very similar, you know, working in a, in a welfare practice up in the mountains. And, you know, when, you, when people look at the, the type of work that mm. you and I both do. I mean, they think we fell out of the tree and you know, we hit the ground running. But tell, tell me about how that experience shaped you, changed you, influenced you working in those remote areas, working in the low-income low environments. Yeah, no, it's, I think looking, so when I was in that situation, I thought, you know, this is the worst possible thing that I could be doing for my career. But then looking back, I realized there's a lot of skills that I learned about uh, efficiency and doing the basic things really, really well that I've brought into the way that I practice now. So a lot of those patients either couldn't afford or weren't allowed to have, you know, crown and bridge work basically because they weren't allowed on their government vouchers to, to have that work done. So all of the work that I did, which is very large, big five surface resin restorations to replace very large, big amalgam restorations. So I got very good at just taking things apart and then converting them into a really big five surface restoration. Obviously the cusp, the prettiness and tinting and all that stuff came a lot later on, but the actual sort of hand skills were developed basically, you know, in the trenches, uh, doing all that, uh, all that sort of grunt work as people would call it, just basically drilling, filling and billing. You know, I, I don't think I would be where I am today if I hadn't had that experience or it, I would be a different person. I, I, I can recall how many times I did a, you know, upper three to three endos and, you know, MIDFLs, you know, WFTs, you know, whole, whole freaking tooth restorations. And, and, and we did good work, but it, it, it was very hard, but I think we developed a, a set of hand skills that you just cannot teach you no. know, in a private level practice it just the it's impossible you don't have that kind of patient base and you wouldn't always be providing that sort of care yeah because the, the patients like you like you were alluding to they just they have work that needs to be done because when you're when you're going through the i don't know what the education system like is in america but um a lot of the patients that you see when you're a student are obviously the same government voucher patients so there there's a great need with them the the caries rate with them is a lot higher um their the medical history is a lot more complex everything is just a bit more complex and there's a lot of work to do with each of those patients and that continued after i graduated into private practice so i felt like I was still a student for another two years, which, like I said, back then it felt bad. But looking back now, I feel like it was a it was a blessing that I was able to continue developing those skills after I graduated. Well, well, talk me and walk me forward from, you know, the traveling dentist, you got off the airplane and tell me about your transition to private from there. How did that feel? How did that develop? Well, obviously it was private, the stuff that I was doing back then, but uh, it was just, I was seeing, you know, non-private patients, uh, but it was in a private clinic. But I, I kind of decided, like once my books were, were getting lighter, that there was more to dentistry than just, you know, filling a hole in someone's tooth. I, I wanted more. I realized that I, there was no purpose 
or it felt like there was no purpose back then behind the work that I was doing. So I'd only done one, I think one crown in two years um, when I was in private practice, when I graduated. And I thought that's, that's, I was seeing what other people were doing online because that's the start of when the online stuff was starting to come out. Um, and I was getting a little bit jealous and I knew that there was more out there that I could do with my, my skills. So, like I said, I moved on to find greener pastures and then I just started my, my CPD journey, my, you know, continual development and my courses. And I focused a lot on the hand skills because I didn't believe that I had enough hand skills to do the more complex work. I knew where I wanted to be. I just had to try and get myself there. So a lot of course, I think I ended up doing like 120, 200 hours of um, continual education, like every year for like five, six years. Uh, And they weren't just, you know, all hands-on courses where I was flying around the world to do it. There were, you know, lectures or reading a book. I tried to read like a new book every single week. And a lot of them were sort of dental ones. A lot of them focused on communication skills and things like that. So you're kind of a slacker. Yeah, pretty much. Just, yeah, I just roll out of bed in the morning, grab a coffee. (laughs) A book a week. I didn't even know these things. I didn't even know these things open. I mean, I got a shelf full of them and they're very colorful. And and, and. I just collect them so I can put them behind me on, uh, on zoom meetings basically these days, but um, it's some books take a little bit longer than a week, Um, but they're usually the big fat (laughs) ones. Like there's the big, the big fat pink Perio book. um, Sitting, it's sitting right in front of me. Perio aesthetic. Yeah. Implant surgery by. Uh, Zer and hers. I can't pronounce the second word. Herzler. Yeah, that, that that one's one of my favorite um, my favorite books. The amount of knowledge that I've I've gotten from that book is just is just ridiculous. I've got the I've got the book, and that probably took me probably a couple of months to actually read cover to cover properly. But then I think I every the... every Go ahead, week, every month, I probably flick through it again before a case just to remind myself. Uh, about things and this is not a plug for the book or any specific you know course but I do you know frequently in the morning huddle at work while eating my breakfast have that book in front of me just sort of reminding myself okay this is how I do those stitches this is and these are procedures that I've done you know tens or hundreds of times and then I still flick through that book and go ah yep there's always something that I can pick up there's always the, the knowledge never stops even though, you know, I've been doing this for a while. Well, 10 years feels like a while to me, but the knowledge <laughs> never stops. You know, I, I made the huge, massive mistake, whether intentional or, or what. I bought that book, Zuccelli's book. And then I was down in Brazil and Carvalho and Silva gifted me their book. You know, so mm. one, one. I mean, I, I, I really built up my core strength because, you know, those yeah. books, those books can stop, a, you know, a 357 Magnum. But, you know, I mean, jokes aside on that, Mike, I, you and I, I mean, it seems like we met so long ago. It must have been the 1860s, but I, I know it's only like six years. And no, you'll never live that down. Uh, oh, I know it was, it was six. I looked it up. It was six years ago that you and I met in Sydney. And yeah, I mean, what a wild ride. But when, you, when you're talking about these, and my jokes aside about the books and stopping bullets, I mean, your commitment to excellence in so many fields is, is to me, it, it's remarkable it's inspiring. And 
you know, you, you say you're only 10, you know, you're, you've already been or only 10 years in practice. I'm 27 years in practice. And I, I'm, I'm really inspired by your integration of knowledge and how you put it into practice. Can you, can you share us, share your secret or your method of the madness? What, what's the secret sauce on how you turn pink books into practice? Uh, in all honesty, it's probably just more madness than method. Um, well, that's how I feel anyway. But I mean, there's a lot of things that I do. Um, so there's a lot of different hats that I wear. There's, there's, you know, Michael, the person, there's Michael, the clinician, there's Michael, the, the educator, there's Michael, the father, Michael, the husband, there's lots of different hats that I wear throughout the whole day. Um, and there's, there's a lot of balls that I juggle in the air. And obviously at times I am going to, to drop a ball. I'm going to, you know, not look after myself as well, or just not be the best parent or the best husband or the best educator or the best clinician that I can be. So, um, to those people listening that think that I have everything together and that everything is perfect. It's not, there's, there's bits that I sort of fail at, or I need to sort of redo certain things or, or make up, uh, make up for the, I think the one thing that I do try to do is whenever I'm working on a specific task, whatever it is in dentistry or in something else, I try to just hone in my focus and just do that task without anything else happening around me so if i'm reading i'll be reading about a specific thing and i'll just turn off the phone and just do that if i'm working on a lecture i'll put on some music noise cancelling headphones the world can be ending around me and i'm just going to be doing that same thing with when i'm working on a you know a patient for two three four five hours at a time you just sort of get into a zone and it's almost like you're meditating and then you just make sure that everything else just kind of goes away and you're just honing in just focusing on one individual task is the only thing that I can sort of say that I might do slightly differently to other people is I don't like a lot of the time you have like the receptionist nurse or something they come in the door and they're asking you questions and I've tried to filter all that out or just get them to not do that so it's just you and the patient and then your nurse are just taking care of everything else around you so that you can just focus on that one patient um i'll have you know cheat sheets and things on the screen so if there's a specific <laughs> thing that i want i'll literally have it on the screen in front of me so if there's some uh, like i was saying like i'll read the the textbook before i i'll see a patient and i might have a photo of that and i'll have it up on the screen in front of me and it's just to remind me how to do a certain procedure. Like I've done it a thousand times, but just still nice to have that textbook version of the procedure up so that you can go, okay, that's what I want it to look like. This is what mine looks like. What do I need to change in order to get it to look like that? And you sort of keep going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards until you can you know, improve your skills to, to that level. So having like a goal to work towards. I, I love that idea. And I, I was laughing in the middle of your explanation because, you know, as long as I've been doing this, um, I, I don't know how to say it. The more, the, the older you get, the more you are comfortable with your lack of confidence. And by that, I mean, uh, I, I keep a checklist. I, I type, when I'm doing a comprehensive case, I literally type out a checklist. It's, it's not on the computer, it's taped behind me and I, you know, I'm taking a Sharpie marker and, and checking yeah. things off and putting down those important things. 
and uh, and just embracing that uh, you know we need that kind of support that uh, that we're not perfect that we don't remember everything and as many times and the thousands of times that you say that we do these things it doesn't mean we're not going to forget that critical piece that one time oh 100% like i've got for like you with the comprehensive cases i have a checklist but it's it's on the computer and i literally because 99% of the time i'll just do them without even thinking about it but I will get my nurse to just go through each and every single one of the checklists as I'm working on the patient. Um, Cause some of them we've already answered in a previous, um, in a previous appointment or might not be applicable to this patient, but at least I'd go through the list and I go, okay, have I checked the patient's, you know, occlusion or interferences? Have I checked this thing? Um, you know, have I remembered to get a bite reg or have I just for some reason forgotten <laughs> to get a bite reg? Um, and then all the photos, because there's some photos that I do in a specific case that I might not do with every single case. Like there's um, a photo that I really like uh, visually, but it doesn't um, come up in a lot of cases where you take a, let's see if I can describe this on an, an audio-based medium, but basically you get the patient to bite their teeth together with their lips retracted and you put the mirror on the buckle of their lower incisors so that you can see the gap between their lower incisors and their upper incisors when they're biting together. Basically, you're trying to see if there is space between. So if there's how much overjet there is, and it's usually with those wear patients where they've worn their teeth down enough that they have room to elongate the in lower incisors or the, uh, the palatal of their upper incisors, but you just don't know until you get a study model but if we get that photo, you can give you a hint as to the direction to, to go. So that's a useful photo, but I frequently forget to take it because it's only for specific patients. So I have it in my checklist. And if I don't need it, I know I don't need it. I just don't take it. But if I do need it, I remember to take it. Oh, good. It's just not me. I, I forget that one all the time. It's, hmm. it's, uh, you should add it to your checklist. I, well, I actually want your checklist. I, I, would, I, would, I would honestly love to see that because the one thing with you know severe wear cases is people make the assumption that just because there's severe wear there won't be room and sometimes mm. there is sometimes there isn't we just don't know and that that picture i i, I find fascinating mm. and it, it was one that uh god i haven't even thought about uh, front of my mind you know in the front of my consciousness thought about that that's a that's a great tip I'm, I'm actually taking i'm taking some notes over here so that uh good good, good. i should take, yes. i should get a pen and paper and take some notes from from things that you've said just to make me feel better about myself is that what you're saying yeah pretty much pretty much i knew that okay i i get it. I, I see what you're doing so mike you you do practice excellence in so many areas and and, and i appreciate you accepting and owning that compliment uh what are your passions in dentistry and, and why? Which areas are you really, really passionate about? What, what really gets you up in the morning? So, I mean, if you want it, the, I mean, the, the technical question or the, the technical answer to that um, is basically anything that's restorative or anything that's surgical. So I like to make things pretty and I like to get blood on my hands would be the two, the two areas of dentistry that I- Preferably not at the in, same time. Probably not at the same time. Um, otherwise it's a- <laughs> Yeah, that's a whole different uh, kettle of fish, but that's that's the thing that I that I enjoy. Like if I have a big surgical case or a big aesthetic case, uh, you know, I, I can be excited in the morning. Be like, yes, I'm I'm excited. I'm going to insert those veneers or, or do this. I've got a, a patient on 
on Monday morning. Actually, no, this evening. Wait, I'm doing it this evening. Um, that I'm inserting some veneers and it's a long-term case. We started this like five years ago. We did half her anteriors in resin, the other half in ceramic because of budget reasons. She, re she was renovating her kitchen. Um, <clears throat> and then the kitchen turned into this like 100, I think she said it's like 110,000 Australian dollar kitchen that she, she created, her dream kitchen. So she didn't really have any money left over to finish off her dentistry. So we've just been delaying and delaying this for, for a couple of years. And finally, uh, tonight we're, we're inserting it. So I'm very sort of happy for her. Um, but the, the more sort of cerebral answer to, to your question would be anything that helps me achieve my overarching goal in dentistry, which is basically to help people increase their confidence through their teeth or through their smile. Cause a lot of the time people come, come broken. They have no other options. They didn't know that they could smile again and to get those patients to then basically smile again and sort of start living the life that they want rather than hiding their smile, hiding who they are just because they're embarrassed or ashamed of their teeth. Those cases are the, the ones that, you know, get me to jump out of bed in the morning and go, I really want to help this person to be able to smile and, and get to that sort of next stage in their life. You know, those type of goals, uh, they don't just come from anywhere. I mean, mm. was that was that a self-inspired goal? Did another clinician or educator inspire you in that regard of what was possible? Look, there are various clinicians that have um, inspired me to actually hone in and write that goal down. I think at one point I had that goal written down in the bathroom um, on the mirror, just, you know, in in whiteboard marker on the on the bathroom mirror so I could see it every morning but as I get older I sort of have reflected back on on my life and sort of realized that yeah I did probably have a confidence issue when I was growing up when I was a, a teenager um, I didn't go through anything horrific I didn't go through any you know significant bullying or or anything my life didn't really stand out in in that way but for whatever reason call it hormones or situation or just, you know, rite of passage. I ended up with a, a lack of confidence. I, despite what people think online, I became quite introverted and I had to really work hard to re-get out of my shell and become sort of an extroverted introvert. I was very sort of extroverted as a, as a toddler, as a kid. Um, and then I think at some point, once I, I hit puberty and went to high school, that sort of, I closed in on myself um, and started having a lot more sort of self-doubts and self-criticisms. Um, and I think I see that in other people at times, especially when uh, they, they come in and they're like, look, I haven't smiled for years. I don't like my smile. And then I start to go, okay, well, this person has a problem that I can help fix I've got a unique set of skills. I can try to help them in to achieve this uh, goal that they might want to be able to smile. And sometimes it's something simple, like they just don't like their central incisor because it has a chip in it. That's easy. I just do a, a small filling. They're happy. Everyone's happy. Other times it's, you know, a full clearance and a denture or, or implants or whatever we need to do to get them from point A to point B um, in their confidence. And I find those cases really rewarding. Um, because it's, it's almost like therapy for the patient. So they've had this burden, this physical burden they've carried with them. And it has, it has a stigma attached to it that they, 
they do make worse in their head. I think a lot of people will, will judge them based on, on how their teeth look. But a lot of the patients that I get, some of their problems aren't huge and not crazy. Like they might just have a rotated central. And for them, it's the end of the world. But no one else looking at them would say, oh, you're a horrible person because you know your, your central is, is rotated. But then I have other patients who they're victims of domestic abuse or uh, significant violence or you know ex-drug addicts. And they've gone through really significant things in their life, but they don't have that same stigma uh, with them. So every patient's going to be different. And I just try to, to help each person as, as much as I can using the skills that I have so that they can sort of come out of their shell similar to, to I, how I came out of my shell. That, I, I don't have a follow-up question. That, I mean, that was, that made me Well, that's actually the first time that I've actually to... verbalized all of that. So that, that's an exclusive, exclusive for you. I don't think I've actually verbalized all that quite so long and eloquently. There, there, I don't think I would have been there, able to a few years ago. There's a, there's a depth and a, eloquence and impact that yeah i'll just let that i'm going to let that just one sit and simmer in, in in my head and uh and move on to another area which is connected to that because you you talked about what bothers them that others don't see you talked about uh helping whether it's violence or domestic abuse but going back to what you said before that is you were talking about uh, some of the photographs that you take that mm. you use to help these kind of people how did you get into the level of photography? And if you, and if you could walk back to training wheels and, and, and oh, the yeah. tricycle photography level, and you just didn't get here by mistake and it didn't happen overnight. How oh, no. did your exceptional photography happen? I, I mean, I was looking at your masterclass uh, from, just, that was just the other day, just last week, I think. Yeah, and yeah. You, had a, you had a photograph of a quadrant of teeth that I think had to be extracted or, or shot from different patients. You know which picture maybe I'm talking about. And if you don't just play along because no one else yeah, I'll play plays along. either. <laughs> how, how did you get to where you are? And just walk, just walk us through your journey. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. They, there were individual extracted teeth that uh, is from various patients. And then I photographed them and then digitally put them together to. Yeah, That's what I just said. Yeah, 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 cool. No, but I, I'm just, I'm just saying that. Yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> we're on the same wavelength. Um, okay. So I can say when, it again louder and slower if it helps you. Yeah, that, that would help. It is very early in the morning here in, in Adelaide. No, it's, it's, it's eight o'clock in the morning. It's not that early. Um, okay. So when I, I graduated at a time where digital, look, digital has been around since the early nineties. So I can't say that I graduated before digital or anything like that. But when I graduated, digital hadn't started really developing into, um, into the practices that I was working at. So the practice, first practice that I worked at, it was all paper-based. Uh, they didn't even have a computer there. So I had to bring my own computer to try and do some more high-level stuff. And I remember I had gone overseas one year and my father had bought me a just an old Sony digital camera. Um, <laughs> and it was a kit lens and I used that to do intraoral photos and everything was blurry but patients could see it. I mean, I didn't even have an intraoral camera back then because there was just nothing that I had available to me. And then that kind of developed into, okay, well, I'm getting these photos. They're just not very good. 
So then I started just learning. This was before I knew that there were courses about dental photography. And I just started learning more and more and more. Um, and then I went to a practice, the one that I am now. And then they had a digital camera in nearly every room. And so I was like, oh, well, this is awesome. I don't have to use my own crappy camera anymore. I can start using theirs. And then that's what I was using. And then I just started playing around with the settings and going on YouTube and just sort of learning more about not dental photography, but just photography in general. I just realized as soon as I picked up a camera that there were things that I could see that I couldn't normally capture or see with my, my sort of naked eye. So I started learning more about photography in general. And then I reached a point where I feel I maximized what I could achieve with the cameras that I had available to me. And I was starting at that point to do a lot more posting online and things like that. And I think Lincoln gave a, like a, a flyaway comment saying, look, if you do want to get into teaching and, and take your presentation skills to the next level, you will have to get your own camera and sort of upgrade the rig that you have. You can't just rely on, I think it was like five, six, eight year old, um, technology that I was uh, using to, to take my, my photos. So I literally just took a photo of his camera setup. This was back when he first started using his massive twin flashes with his uh, paper diffusers and everything. And then went to my local camera shop and I said, can you help me get a camera set up? I'm a dentist. And they're like, aha, I know exactly what you need. You want a ring flash and you want a Canon. And I said, no, I want something completely different. Here is a camera setup that someone's made. Can you make this exact same thing, but in Nikon, because I'm different. And they, they managed to piece things together. And uh, then I got a camera bracket and then I used that for like five years. And then recently I bought a vintage um, Novaflex camera bracket that they don't make anymore. And I managed, it took me six years to find this. I'm very proud of it. And I love it despite its faults, but um, it's a vintage uh, fl macro flash bracket system that's from the 80s that a guy in France had sitting in his garage, I assume, unopened in the box still. And I I bought it and yeah, that's that's been amazing sort of ever since. But what's, I, different about, yeah. what's different about that bracket setup? Uh, so the difference with that bracket setup is it's really stiff. So there's no flex to it whatsoever. So I've tried a lot of different brackets, both myself and there's various clinicians in the practice. So they've all had their go at um, different flash bracket systems. And a lot of them, when you get into, because I don't use the little flashes that most people use with their um, twin flashes. I use the, the proper big flashes and I use two of them and they get heavy. There's like 14 batteries to power the, oh my God. the camera system. So it takes a lot of weight on it. Um, and because I can actually tighten the screws on each individual thing, I mean, the whole thing can move and swing in any direction and it doesn't like whack the patient in the face. Whereas most of the normal um, camera brackets that you get, it's a friction arm system. So if you have too much weight on it, it's just going to swing anyway. There's nothing to lock it. Whereas with mine, I can actually lock it. And I'm looking at, I'm always looking at upgrading it because I'm crazy. Um, and I saw on some random person's actually, no, I was watching like a documentary and someone had an underwater camera setup that looked identical <laughs> to mine, but it was underwater. So then I actually researched and there's a lot of like twin flash macro photography 
setups for underwater cameras. And I was like, oh, awesome. I'm going to look at underwater camera system um, setups, but they're like 1,600 for like the, the flash bracket. So I was like, eh, maybe I should slow down and just be happy with what I have for now. <laughs> Plus, you'd have to take your patients underwater, which would I would have to take my patients underwater, and then you'd get some very unique shots of a of a of a central incisor at that point. <laughs> fish lens, fish lens mm. effect, I think would would be. I've actually done a, a novice level fair bit of underwater photography, and I and I do love it. But some of that stuff, I could not even imagine bringing that into an operatory. But your 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 work speaks for itself. So. You, you brought up you know, your, your digital and we were talking about photography, but you also made a journey into digital dentistry and mm. you know, starting off in analog. And uh, how, how about how about share your thoughts on that or share your your journey on the digital side and, and where you are in that? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I started my journey in, in digital fairly sort of on, on in my career. Like I was saying, digital stuff really was starting to, to pick up and become mainstream when I graduated. So um, I'd like to say I hit the ball running, but one of the practices that I was bouncing around between, they had a uh, really, I think it was an old, I think it was red cam, um, okay. Zeric, or it was just blue cam <laughs> or something like that. Anyway, and they said, oh, yeah, 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 we'll teach you how to, to use it. It's going to be part of the, you know, part of your, you know, core stuff that you do. And I was like, oh, this is going to be exciting. And then I grad, and then I, you know, started working there and they're like, off you go, get it done. And I was like, I don't know how to do it. And they're like, that's not my problem. You should learn. Uh, so I had to kind of sort of teach myself uh, a little bit of the digital stuff. So it was a bit clunky at first. And then because it wasn't the best experience early on, I kind of shied away from it. Um, I didn't really like using it because the results that I was getting weren't great, but that really wasn't because the technology was bad. It was really that my dentistry was crappy. And so it was actually just showing me how crappy my dentistry was because I had to be my own lab tech. And then I had to realize that all my preps had undercuts. Um, and so once I realized that I started fixing all my dentistry in the back end, getting all those core skills that we were talking about before um, refined. And then I went, okay, well, I can do the dentistry well. Now let's start learning the lab tech side of things well. Um, and then the only way for me to do my own lab work in-house really is with sort of the CEREC system and things like that. And then that kind of just grew from there. I just developed a bit of a passion from doing lab work side of things. Um, and I've sat down with my lab tech multiple times and sort of seen how he does things properly. Cause there's a way that we dentists tend to do work, um, but it's completely different from how lab techs will do things like the way that dentists will pour up a, a model just quickly, just sort of mix some stone by hand and just sort of slap it in there and then pour it on the Gasp. I know Don't. it's completely Ooh. different to how lab techs actually do things. So actually going in and seeing how they do it and then trying to replicate that um, in the practice. And then you kind of go down this rabbit hole. And because I don't have a lot of those other technologies and things that a full lab you know, setup would have, I then have to piece it up, piece it together with various different parts and digital really helps to do that. So I print my own models. Um, I, I make, I print my own special trays and I'm starting to print a lot of other things as well because it's really easy and straightforward to design it on the computer these days compared to having the hand skills to do a special tray by hand in acrylic with, you know, powder and liquid and things like that, which I did when I was an undergraduate, but 
I mm-hmm. com- completely lost that skill because I did it once. So it's just easy for me to design something on the computer from, I'm from the generation where, I mean, I learned how to do CAD modeling at school uh, in high school. We did video editing, we did CAD modeling, we did like video production, music production and various other things um, at, uh, at high school. So a lot of those skills I've sort of gone, oh, I sort of know how to do this. And then with an arrogance when I can do this and then realize I can't. And then because I was still arrogant, instead of going, okay, I'm just going to get someone else to do this for me. Uh, then we'll just go on YouTube or do other courses and then learn how to actually do things properly uh, and yeah. then sort of go from there. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's funny when you bring up, you know, meeting up with your technician. I, I was a, I was an in-house trained technician for my father. My father was a mm. dentist and I'm pretty sure my, my baby formula was, was vacuum spatted. And uh, I did get suspended from Marquette university for mixing a margarita in a vacuum spat and breaking it after hours. I was a, <laughs> the, uh, um, what do you call it? The gross anatomy. Uh, I did all the dissections. So I actually had, wow. uh, I, I, I had keys to the school and I was making a margarita in a vacuum spat and it exploded and I had tequila all over. And you, you know, you cannot get tequila smell out. And, and that's no. a pro tip right there. You cannot get tequila smell out of a lab bench as easily as you might think before wow. the dean shows up the next morning but that that's a whole other story and a whole other podcast but it leads me right into my next question what would you tell a previous version of yourself if you had the chance basically slow down it's all going to work out there is a process that you've thought about there's an end goal you've made all the the effort and the you've you basically slow down, you have an end goal, you have a process to work towards it, it is going to work out, just trust the process. Because when I graduated, I, I said I wanted to do you know the pretty stuff and the surgical stuff. And then I toyed with being a specialist at some point, but um, for various levels that we can and what well, we may or may not get into, um, I didn't go down that pathway. I had the end goal of, okay, I want to do implants. I don't want to do that high level surgical stuff and the aesthetic stuff. Okay. How do I get to that goal? Okay. Well, I need to be able to do the basic stuff first before I can get to that high level stuff. Okay. How do I do the basic stuff? Okay. I need to do these courses, work on my isolation techniques, my prepping techniques, my composite techniques. Okay. And then you break each idea down into a smaller idea and then figure out how to solve that problem and then once that's solved you move on to the next one then you move on to the next one but i had this idea 10 years ago and now i'm roughly where i want to be and i can see myself i can see the end well not an end goal but i can see where my skills will be in a couple of years time 10 years ago i couldn't see that and so there were times along the way where I had that self-doubt going, you know what, I'm doing all these courses, I'm doing all these things, I'm doing all this learning. And I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not doing big cases. I might be doing like one case every, you know, few months or once a year. Like all these skills are getting wasted. Or I'm not having enough practice with these skills and all those self-doubt things that you, you get along the way. But then slowly things just start happening for you you start doing more of these cases you start doing more of this more of that and then it just grows and grows and grows and then i become you know where i'm at where i am today so just telling my previous self that it will work out just trust the process do that sort of grunt work and sort of keep practicing towards it and you get there 
Would previous self have listened? No. <laughs> Can you think about someone giving you that advice to slow down back then? I have no idea who actually told me told me I, I I honestly have no idea but someone did give me that advice um like it might have been Lincoln it might have been someone else I'll attribute it to to Lincoln but um it might have even been yourself I have no I honestly have no <laughs> idea who actually said it um but it, it had enough of an impact on me that I changed my entire mentality about dentistry and then framed my entire educational career and my entire CPD journey or my continual development around it. And it shaped who I will become or back then. But I didn't, for whatever reason, like I kept that end goal in mind. I just never let go of it. I just have no idea who told me about it. So I could never talk to them about it again and just get that mentorship along the way. But it's such a good end goal and it's such a common end goal that a lot of other people have gone down that pathway so you know when i've spoken to other clinicians as well they're like oh yeah that's how i did things as well and i go okay well if if it worked for them then it must work for me and then yeah i sort of even though i had those self-doubts every now and then you'd get that little pick me up by talking to another mm -hmm. clinician and you go okay well it, it takes time. I'll get there in the end. I'll get there in the end. I'll get there in the end. And then eventually get to the end. And you're like, oh, I got there. Well, the end or the transition? To oh, it's a transition. Year. Yeah. Because I, I, I'm, I'm not at that point where I need to get bigger goals. I, I feel like I haven't even achieved the goals from, from 10 years ago. But yeah, you're right. It's a transition. You, you never, I never want to get to the end of a journey. There's always another journey. And you want to get you want to figure out what the next destination is before you finish your current destination. I don't want to have any periods where I'm going, what now? Like I've finished everything. I've achieved these goals. Like what now? So if you go, okay, well, I'm nearly at that point. What's going to be my next thing. So then you can start working on the next thing before you even finish the first one, because there's no, like at what point it's not something that you can quantify with. When do I become the best clinician I possibly can be? It's not like you get a, someone comes in and hands you a certificate and says, congratulations, you've won at dentistry. Um, it just doesn't <laughs> happen. So it's all, it's all oh, you arbitrary. You didn't get one of those? No, I, get... I'm, I'm still waiting for oh, that one. That's, I'm um, sorry. I thought so, everybody almost got one of those. No, no. <laughs> so Mike, it, it's just get... all, yeah. You know, you're talking about transitions and, and you did go through a transition. And from that committed clinician, committed to excellence, you became an educator and you got into teaching. How yeah. and how and or why, when did that happen? Look, like most things in my life, it's tends to be just something that I fell into. Um, I don't like public speaking. It comes from the, from being, you know, I think a, a fear that a lot of people have. I think it's the number one fear um, that, that people have. So I don't like public speaking or I didn't like public speaking. And <laughs> I thought one of the ways that I could get over my sort of introvertedness is by just throwing myself in the deep end and doing more public speaking. Um, so I used to be a, a first aid trainer with part of uh, St. John's first aid. I was a cadet 
uh, trainer uh, when I was uh, in high school. And then I sort of developed some skills with that and did some teaching as part of that. And then I realized that I, I enjoyed it enough that I would sort of start dabbling in it again. And then a few people uh, were interested in the story that I had because I'd done a few posts about, you know, my journey on online forums and they wanted me to talk about it in a more public setting. So they invited me to talk at, at a lecture or at an event. And then I was like very extremely nervous, but, you know, I'd flown myself and my, my then girlfriend, now wife, um, over to Melbourne to, to do these sort of lectures. And then you start to get like an appreciation for it and like, oh, I like doing this. But then other people heard me talk and they go, oh, you've got something going for you. Let's get you to talk more and then talk more and then talk more. And then eventually it ended up, you know, I was helping Lincoln at courses and then I enjoyed it. And then he kind of just sort of mentored me a bit with the, the public speaking and the, uh, the education side of things. And essentially it boiled down to, look, you're doing some good posts online. Can you then convert that post into a lecture? And I was like, well, 90% of the work's already done with a post. I just need to verbalize everything rather than typing it down. So I thought that's going to be easy. Um, and then <laughs> like I used to write notes and they're like, have like a whole speech. It's like, okay, this slide, I need to talk about this thing and then this thing. But then it just always sounded not very authentic. Just, you know, trying to read from, from a teleprompter or something uh, in front of you. And then I designed a, a course um, that I run as well. And then I just, I just clicked one day that these are my patients. This is, this is not some arbitrary concept that I'm talking about, about, you know, something that I have no idea about like finance or something like that, where I'm reading from a script. These are my patients. I've lived and breathed them. There are stories behind them that are difficult to write down, but they're all in my head. And so I just started talking authentically um, at my sort of public speaking. And then that really resonated with a lot of people. I think that um, the way that I do my sort of lecturing, because I come from a place of insecurity, resonates with a lot of other clinicians because that's either where they're at or where they have been. And then it's that overarching goal as well. I can sort of help increase people's confidence in the work that they do so that then they can go out and do better dentistry and help their patients achieve their goals and improve their smiles as well. So it's an extension to that sort of overarching goal that I have with helping people increase their confidence. I just sort of bended it a little bit so it would fit into the education space. And then that sort of spurred me on and gave me a new sort of, not lease on life, but uh, reinvigorated my sort of enjoyment of teaching. And like my, my father is a lecturer at university. Um, my, my brother is a, a teacher in a high school. So uh, a lot of my other um, uh, relatives are sort of teachers. So maybe you can say we have teachers teaching in our blood. Um, but it was always something that I didn't want to do because I, you know, you get through that phase in your life where you want to distance yourself from how your father is and what your, what your family does. You want to create your own path, but then you end up falling into the exact same patterns and the exact same uh, end goal that your, your sort of uh, your father and your sort of family did. And then you kind of look back and you go, you know what? Yeah. He, he was right in sort of doing it this way. It's, it's really enjoyable. And, you know, I've sort of kept with it ever since. 
you know, Ripe Global, by definition, global is a, a lot of the people uh, haven't met each other in person, even though we feel like we know each other quite well. But you and I have, have spent, I think when we met, we spent close to a week together between uh, foundations or nuts and bolts back then and, mm -hmm. and the advanced occlusion program. And watching that journey with you from, you from younger dentist to educator, and by the way, I think you're an exceptional public speaker, you're engaging, you're authentic. How have you found that teaching has changed, evolved since COVID? Oh, since COVID. Um, I, I think it's changed tremendously. I know that a lot of the the old ways of teaching where, you know, there's someone that you want to go see teach and then you have to wait for them to have time in their book to fly halfway across the world for them, for you to then fly halfway across your country to then go listen to them teach. I think they're, they're a way of the past. They're going to be, there's still going to be, you know, events where people fly into a symposium or to a, a big sort of lecture of a group of individuals, but for the individual clinician, I think it's gonna it's gonna keep going the way that it's going with people just delivering lectures online because you can you can enjoy the same lecture that you would by flying halfway across the world in your living room in your pajamas, and I would <laughs> rather be in my pajamas on the couch listening to you know someone lecture then have to drag myself halfway across the world, wake up in the morning, leave my entire family behind just so I can listen to someone lecture when I could get the exact same knowledge while on my couch. Like it's no different. Like, yes, there's a social interaction, but at that point I'm not flying halfway across the world for social interaction. I have friends and family here that I can interact with. And if I really want to go catch up with Michael Melkers in, in America, then I'll just fly and catch up with Michael Melkers in America. I don't need the excuse of oh, I'm go I'm in I'm in the country just for a lecture. I might as well go see Michael Melkers. And it's so, awkward sometimes if you show up at a lecture in in your pajamas. Yeah, I know, if you do come if you do come visit Janine and I, you know, you will we have extra slippers and you and please actually do bring your pajamas. Uh, Good. So, I, I, I do you... plan to. <laughs> Just got to you know, like, just go wait for the borders to open up. But yes, with, with that evolution, I mean, you and I have we're we're practically been joined at the hip for the last <clears throat> I, I don't know how many months. Mm. And you're how how have you found the first year of the fellowship in restorative dentistry? I mean, moving from you know moving through that COVID experience to what yeah. we've created together. I think it's it, it's been eye opening. Like I think everyone. At first, when when Lincoln first dropped the first um, concept of the fellowship and the way that things were going digital, I feel that, I mean, I didn't have any doubts on his ability to do it, but I think there was a, a healthy amount of skepticism in the ability for a course to be done virtually because it had never been done before to that level. Um, and so I went in there with open eyes and I said, look, let's just give it a chance. Let's see how we, it's going. If anyone can achieve it, it's going to be Lincoln. He's, he knows how to run a hands-on course. Um, let's see what happens. And just from the first time, because I, I, was, I was developed from it from the beginning. So before students were actually doing it, um, a lot of the educators behind the scenes were learning the the virtual setup, the programs and all that. And I just remember it all just clicked. I, I got the kit delivered in the mail. I plugged it all in at the <laughs> magic silver at the suitcases. practice. 
And it was just, I mean, the boxes that it came in was just ridiculous. It was just an actual crate. And it was like, I plugged it all in and I'm like, this can work. This is before the cameras were even turned on, but I was like, this can work. I, I can see this working. And then we did the first like mock hands-on experience with Lincoln and all the other educators. I remember and I was like, was there with you. And I was like, it just clicked. Like the moment I picked up a handpiece and then just Lincoln's on the screen in front of me, I was like, I had like literal goosebumps. It was basically <laughs> like I was, you know, off at one of his courses, his, you know, talking in my ear, take a photo, send it to him. He's critiquing it just like he normally would it felt like I was right back to the year before where I was at the hands-on courses with him, helping him educate. And I just haven't looked back ever since. Um, I ran a, a course, a physical hands-on course in Adelaide uh, a couple of months ago this year. And I was looking at their, at their work, just, you know, straight on, just, you know, using my loops. And I was like, oh, this would be so much easier if it was digital. I would just get a photo and put it up on the screen <laughs> and then draw it. So that's what I did. I just took photos of their work and then just put it up on the screen. And then I could point to the things that were an issue. And I was like, well, I don't even need the person to be there. I can just have them on the other side of the world and do the exact same level of education, the exact same level of knowledge and, and go from there. Mike, you, you know, aside from the FRD and what you and I have experienced as educators together, uh, you know, helping Lincoln fulfill his vision is mm. you're one of the main architects of the upcoming fellowship in digital dentistry. What, tell us about that. What lessons you're, you're taking from that? What are you moving forward? What are you excited about in, in that regard with the new digital fellowship coming up? Yes. So the digital fellowship, the curriculum is pretty much finished and it's just, it's been a labor of love. It's something that I want to get once again, something that I stumbled in, I inherited and it's it's all the things that FRD is just taken to the next level with digital dentistry. So we've done a boot camp already, which was a proof of concept, and it just works so well. You just have repetition upon repetition of doing hand uh, hand finishing of ceramics and using the the machines that we have available to us in the the CEREC system in the ecosystem to the best of your abilities so hold on digital but you're talking about hand finishing you yes know, and and and, and this is a little bit loaded question but i mean so it's not just coming out of the machine and it's done and and it goes in and it's pretty no god no so i mean if you a lot of the people when they send things to to their lab whether it's an impression or a scan they'll send it to the lab the lab tech will mill things out and even if you're a high-end lab or a low-end lab they're still going to hand finish things. There's just no way that the, that the mill can get things as perfect as humanly possible straight out. I mean, there's going to be margins that are going to be impossible to achieve with the mill. It's going to be way too thin. It's going to chip when it's milling where you can hand finish it outside of the mouth to a knife edge margin. Like take Verti preps, for instance, you can't mill a, 45 degree bevel in raw zirconia straight out of the mill. It's just going to chip. It's going to cause a lot of issues. Whereas you mill it, you sinter it, and then you hand finish it basically down to a knife edge. And then you're going to have, you know, a perfect end result, but you just can't get that straight out of the mill. So even if you send it to the lab, they're going to hand finish it. They're going to glaze it. They're going to tint it. They're going to do all of those 
hand skills that they've spent 30 years developing to give you the result that you want. So I'm trying to replicate all of those processes, but in-house in uh, at the digital course. So, you know, I've seen a lot of digital courses. I've been at digital courses <clears throat> where it's out, it's either polished or not polished and then just glazed. But, you know, going back earlier in the conversation, you were talking about your commitment to excellence. And I think you've gotten into the Mio system. You've gotten yeah. into some pretty exceptional staining glazing. Is that going to be part of the, and not just Mio, is staining and, and, and characterization? Yes, so staining glazing is a big part. I mean, there's an entire module, not an entire module, entire part of a module that's dedicated to, to staining and glazing. So there are staining and glazing uh, exercises. There's, so you get like a photo or a set of teeth. So you get a set of teeth that is pre-milled for you. And then you have, okay, we want you to create this appearance on this tooth. So you're taking something that's a B1 and we want you to make it into uh, an A2 with a crack line. Uh, we want a hyperchromatic um, A3 in an aged tooth. You need to create a perfect B1 tooth for a veneer and various different training exercises, just so you can develop those hand skills in a safe environment without having the risk of the patient disliking the work. You can do the work for the first time and then send it to us. We can review it and then give you that feedback. So we can say, you know what? I like where you've put the, the tint, where you've put the color, but you just need to be a little bit more refined. Here are some tips and how to refine it and things like that so that you're not just putting it online and then you know, just getting random people's feedback. You know, I don't know how this happened, Mike, but an hour just flew by. Oh, it's been uh, an everyone, hour already. You, wow. It has been. Uh, everyone, all our listeners, if you'd like to hear more about the uh, Mike's uh, Fellowship in Digital Dentistry that he's helped architect, you can log on to www.ripeglobal.com. If I told you four W's, only use three, ripeglobal.com. You can check out all the wonderful offerings that we have in digital dentistry fellowship. We have periodontal implantology. Mike, we didn't even get into your cooking. I think you and I'll have a continuum on that maybe coming up later next year for the holiday season. Yep. Uh, you can always jump on if you have questions for Mike or myself, you can jump on to the Ripe Global Facebook page, but I'll hand it over to you, Mike, if you have any uh, closing thoughts or statements before I uh, wrap us up. No, so I've got no uh, no closing statements or anything. I think if you want to uh, learn more about the fellowship, uh, the continuum, the digital dentistry, uh, reach out uh, on Facebook, Instagram, send a smoke signal, whatever way you can reach me. And then we can sort of talk about um, how we can sort of help you uh, get to the next level in your dentistry as well. Mike, thanks for joining me this morning, evening, afternoon, whatever the heck it is, wherever the heck you are. And everyone, this is Mike Melkers and Iron Mike Frazis, Frazis, Frazise, signing off from Adelaide, South Australia and Hanover, New Hampshire. We wish you a wonderful day, wonderful year, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us for this incredible episode of the Ripe Global Podcast. We'll meet you back here next time for some more insights from Ripe Global. And in the meantime, Ripe Global is teaming up with master dentists from all over the world to offer you a fast-growing library of world-class online lectures and masterclasses. Visit our website at www.ripeglobal.com and become a member today.